I guess you could tell that our topic tonight has to do with worry and fear and anxiety, uh, because that's the topic, it seems to me, suggested by the text we'll look at tonight. As you know, we've been reflecting on Proverbs, the book of Proverbs, which is filled with wisdom, biblical wisdom, designed to help us live life with skill, to live life more skillfully. And uh, wisdom is calling. Is anybody listening? Listen to these two verses in Proverbs chapter 3. These are the ones we'll look at tonight. It's verses 25 and 26. Do not be afraid, it says. Proverbs 3, 25 and 26. Do not be afraid of sudden fear, nor of the onslaught of the wicked when it comes. For the Lord will be your confidence and will keep your foot from being caught. That's the text. So in that passage of Scripture, you can see God tells us in it to do the very thing we are so very prone to do. He tells us, do not be afraid, and that's what we do. It comes naturally. We don't need classes on how to be fearful and how to worry about the future. It seems like it's an inborn thing. It would be contrary to our nature, you see, not to worry. And so... Uh, do not be afraid <laughs> is, a, is a tall order, uh, but God issues this command in the Bible. Did you know this? More frequently than any other commandment. Uh, uh, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. And it's as if, as if God knows it's our nature to be this way, and he knows that we're living in a world uh, that's a very, very fearful enterprise uh, on every front, particularly in our day, more than ever. And so God takes this into account. He's really wise. He's the all-wise God. And so he issues this, this commandment, do not be afraid. In, giving so, in doing so, he's acknowledging our inherent nature to fear, but he's doing something else. It's, it's subtle, uh, but it's clear in this. He's also, did you know this, giving us permission not to fear? Think about this. The creator of the universe, Almighty God, is saying, I give you permission to take a break. Uh, here's what he says. It is not required of you that you be fearful and filled with anxiety. You may think you need to, as if that will protect you, but I'm telling you, it is not necessary. You don't have to. And so you ask the question, on what basis could God make a statement such as that, that there's no reason for us to be fearful and that we have permission to relax, well, here's what it says. The Lord will be your confidence. He's our confidence in the present, and he says if and when uh, things happen in the future, fearful uh, things that take us by surprise, painful things, when they happen, we'll meet up with God then. We know him in the present. He's the God who suppresses time will find him to be our confidence even in the future. And so he says, this is why he says, you can relax. I, I give you permission uh, uh, not to be fearful because, you know, the one you know today, I, I, I will meet up with you no matter what future contingency 
you run into. I, I will not leave you. I'll be the one even there. You can have confidence in. You could lean on me. I'll be there. I'll be someone you can trust in and rely on in the future. He, it's not that he promises smooth sailing to us. Oh, no. But, but he promises no matter what happens, even if the waters of life become quite turbulent for you, he promises, I'll be there with you in the storm. You look for mooring points when a catastrophe befalls you, but I'm telling you, I'm your mooring point now. I will be your mooring point no matter what happens. And though things can happen, yes, horrible things that take you by surprise, he says, they don't take me by surprise because I see the end from the beginning. Did you know that God is a timeless being? He uses time as a vehicle. It's for our benefit. So we, we speak in terms of past, present, and future. But God, God, God is above and beyond the confines of space and and time. So we have a heavenly father who's been there before we before we get there. And so he says, you, 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 you have permission not to be afraid. You know what he's saying? I know you're prone to do it, and you're probably doing it now. And so he's lovingly saying, stop it. Don't continue it. Don't give into it as if you have no option but to be consumed by fear. Fight back. Say, my father neither slumbers nor sleeps. Say, my father sees all things coming. They may surprise me, even shock me, but he knows the end from the beginning. He gave me his best, his only begotten son. How will he not also with him freely give me all things that I need to deal with all future contingencies? So God is saying, don't worry. That's a measure of self-confidence. Don't be self-confident. Don't do that. I will be, he says, I will be your confidence no matter what may come your way. No matter what the future may bring our way. We will meet up with God there because he's the timeless being. We have him here. He's saying we will have him there. Now, this doesn't mean we're offered a guarantee of freedom from tragedy. No, absolutely not. But what we're offered is God in the tragedy. What a tragedy has befallen our world in the last few days in Paris. There were Christians, undoubtedly, I'm sure, interspersed in the crowd of those who were victimized and either directly affected by what happened or indirectly through the passing of friends or relatives. No, God doesn't promise, uh, promise us freedom from tragedy. What he says is, I'll be there with you in the tragedy. See, that's the event is what the people in Paris, believers and non-believers, had in common. But, 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 but who is their confidence? You see, that's what distinguishes believers from non-believers. And so God is saying, in the pains that life may bring, you have to know that I will be there, I will be there with you. And you know what the Father, I think, wants us to remember? Uh, you hurt, but I'm not the one who hurts you. I'm the one who will be with you in the hurt. See the, see the difference? The Father says, how could you think I'm the one who hurt you? I love you. I embraced you at, an, at a price. My, uns, my own son was excruciatingly hurt for you 
Why would I add to that by hurting you? Oh, no, no, no. I'm not the source of hurt. There's hurt in the world. You cannot avoid it. I, I will be with you in the hurt. The Lord will be your confidence. That's, that's, that's what it says. Now, speaking of the Lord, let's speak about the Lord just for a few moments. Did you know that the Lord has characteristics? We call them attributes. One is sovereignty. Only he possesses it. Nobody else possesses the uh, extent of the sovereignty of God. This means he's fully in control. It means he calls all the shots. You have a measure of control over certain things, as do I, but we don't have supreme and ultimate control over all things, but a sovereign God, our sovereign God, does. Nothing could take place without his superintendence. He is aware of absolutely everything and in control of all things. This is the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God should give us great confidence in placing our confidence in the God of the Bible because only he is sovereign. So that's something about God. Here's the second characteristic did you know he's good? Well, you do, of course. He's not only sovereign, he's also good. Now, 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 his goodness is different than ours. We all tend to do good things, I hope, from time to time, especially on behalf of the people whom we love. Holidays are coming up. We want to do good things on behalf of family and friends, you know, who are close to us. But there's a difference between being good by nature, as God is, and doing good things from time to time as we do. Folks, it is not our nature to be good. In fact, the Bible says, and in this case, we don't really need the Bible. All you have to do is sort of live with yourself for a few minutes. You find out that we were born into sin. We started out doing it at an early age. That's something else we didn't have to be taught. We're all PhDs when it comes to knowing how to sin. So we are not good by nature. I know different people would like us to believe that. I would like to believe that, but it's simply not borne out by the facts. It's surely not consistent with the biblical account. So God has a good nature. We don't. Our nature is to be sinful. His is to be good. So he is both sovereign and, and he is good. Now, now, now let's take these two attributes of God one small step further by posing this question. We, we, we know that God is sovereign, and we know that he is good. So though God is sovereign and though God is good, does this mean bad things will not happen to God's people? What do you think? How many people think uh, because of God's sovereignty and goodness, bad things will not happen to God's people. Would, would you raise your hand? I just want to see. We'll take a poll. Okay. And then how many people think, though God is sovereign and good, still uh, bad things can happen to God's people? Can you raise your hand? Let's see. Holy Toledo. No argument in here tonight. Uh, I, I think you're absolutely, absolutely correct. The sovereignty and goodness of God is no guarantee that bad things will not befall his people. There's absolutely no biblical guarantee. I can't find it. If I'm wrong, please show me. I can't find in Old or New Testament any biblical guarantee that the life of a Christian will be safer than the life 
of a non-Christian. I can't find it anywhere. Columbine High School, April 20th, 1999. A gunman points his weapon at the head of a beautiful young girl and asks her, do you believe in Jesus? She pauses in terror. She responds quickly. She says, yes, I believe in Jesus. He pulls the trigger and she dies instantly. She dies along with several others who were not Christians. The same fate, you see, befell God's kids and those who are not. How do you explain this? How could this be if in fact, how could something like that happen if in fact God is sovereign and God is good? Well, I certainly don't understand. I can't fully comprehend all of the workings of God and how he uses events like this in our lives for good, but I do know this. In one pull of the trigger, that beautiful Christian gal was ushered immediately into the arms of her heavenly father. I know she was distinguished in that from the non-Christian kids. She immediately was in the arms of her father. But still you ask, okay, great. She was ushered into eternity, but it was premature. It was before her time. Why would a sovereign and good God allow such things as this to happen? Why would he allow accidents and diseases and natural disasters and, yeah, even terrorist attacks to befall all people, including his own? Why? Well, here's the answer, and I don't like it. I don't think you will either. It's because some things are simply more important to God than the physical safety and well-being of his kids. <clears throat> That's a tough pill to swallow. Yeah, these things befall even God's children. Why? Because God knows of things that are more important even than our physical well-being and the physical well-being of those whom we love. I don't like that. You know, uh, I, when I was in seminary, I had a professor. I forgot what he was teaching exactly. I, I didn't pay much attention. I should have. But he was a good guy, but I, I, didn't, uh, I didn't. But I remember he told a story one time about his daughter, a young little girl. And I don't remember the context. It was some theological point, but I don't remember it. <laughs> but I remember this story. He said, I've had to come to grips with the fact that though I love my daughter more than words could express, I cannot protect her from harm. That was so troubling to me at the time. Why do you say something like that? Of course it was true. He was just admitting you know what he's admitting? He's admitting what no world leader to date in our day has admitted. And that is, oh, this is a bad night for you to be in church. Um, we cannot protect ourselves from ISIS and folks like that. I hate saying that. You know what I mean? I like all the bluster that follows after a tragedy like that. This is an act of war and we will pursue, says the president of France, we will pursue them mercilessly. Our president, along with the world's leaders, this is the right thing to do. Our, our um, stepping up bombing raids and 
hunting down suspected terror, you know, all this kind of stuff. But here's what we learn from the Parisian attack. In spite of the really good intelligence community in France and internationally, evil people can still successfully strike out against us. A better thing to do than to say we have contained them and we'll eradicate them. You see, it's not a people, it's an ideology, don't you see? <laughs> so if you take out this one, that one, that one, that one, and by the way, I'm in favor of that, which is maybe a terrible thing to a minister to say, but I'm in favor of that. Still, <laughs> you don't win over the ideology. You see what I mean? So a better thing than we'll get them and entirely protect our citizenry a better thing is to say, oh, God, I think we're at the point where we've come to the end of ourselves and are willing to say to you, we need outside help. We need help beyond our own resources, wit, and wisdom. We have run the experiment of being confident about our own strength and military and political systems, and now we say to you, oh, God, we don't want to be afraid of sudden fear, things that come upon us unannounced. No, oh God, we want to begin now to place our confidence in you so that in the future we know how to do it. We know how to rest in the Lord. I memorized this verse the other day. I wish our world leaders would say something like this. It's Psalm 18, verse 2. The Lord uh, uh, is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. See, it's possessive. I wish the world community would take possession of a very present deity who is sovereign and good and who says to us, no, I'm up to things that are in your best interest and you think your best interests are your physical well-being. That's why we're always praying for one another's health. You know what I mean? This is a good thing. Don't misunderstand. But there are more important things. Many of us have sickened souls in need of repair. And that's even more important than the healing of our bodies. I think God is in the healing business. We should continue to pray. In fact, today in our staff meeting, we spoke of some healing uh, incidents in our own in our own church in recent days. So please don't let me put God in a box. I'm just saying that's not as important as healing in a relationship, a broken relationship with the creator. That's not as important as an enhanced sense of dependence on him. I had a lady one time tell me, I have a son with a kidney disease, kidney condition. He was born with it. One kidney has already died. It doesn't function. The other is perhaps moving in that direction. We don't know about what the future holds. And this lady told me, I'm certain that God uh, wants to heal him. And so she wanted me to come to a special healing service and uh, have him healed. And uh, first of all, uh, I believe that if God wants to heal, plans to, you don't need a special healer nor healing service. He is a healer. You could just ask him. But then I tried to express to this lady, what if God permitted this to happen so as to use it in my son's life? 
How could this possibly be a good thing, said she. I said, well, I would rather have a son who knows the Lord Jesus Christ than one who doesn't and has two healthy kidneys. What good are healthy kidneys if you're in hell? I would rather have a son perhaps moved by this infirmity to cry out to God for longevity and help. I would rather have a son who's forced out of his comfort zone to think about life and death and eternal life. So you see, this is hard for us to embrace, but I'm telling you, our father knows best, and he thinks sometimes what's best is not our physical well-being. Sometimes he thinks affliction and infirmity will enhance our sense of dependence on him and even our testimony to others. I have a close friend. He's a pastor of a church here in town. In fact, he spoke here sometime. And uh, a few months ago, things began to go wrong with his thinking and speaking and all the rest. And he was brought to the doctors and they found a massive tumor on his brain. They feel like it was growing even from the time he was a child. And they called for immediate surgery. They had to relieve the pressure on his brain. And off he went to MD Anderson for a life-threatening surgery. And I went, I went there to visit him and I thought, oh no, what am I going to say? How can I be an encouragement? What words of hope? He's there, his wife is there, young couple, all the rest. Good night. I didn't even have a chance to talk with him. He was in the lobby on uh, preparing for surgery, and he was sharing uh, his uh, life in Christ with everyone who was there. He said to me, Stuart, I know where I'm going. My eternity is secure in, the, in Christ, the giver of life. He, he, he said, don't cry for me. What about these people who are coming in from all over the world to our wonderful medical uh, facilities here in Houston, but they're apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm telling you, that's the tragedy. And look how God, in my opinion, used one of his choice vessels, his son, one of his sons, Jesse, his name is, used Jesse uh, with this affliction to be able to share things with folks who about Christ you might not otherwise have heard. And you should read the blogs his wife writes. She's a gifted writer. Oh, my goodness. They're now getting a following all over the place of people who are without hope, finding hope in their similar situation. How could they speak into their lives and say, we know what you're going through unless God is allowing them to go through it? There's a passage that says, we have been uh, similarly afflicted so that we can comfort those in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves have been comforted by Christ. And that's why a loving Heavenly Father sometimes says, I know you want to be useful. I know you want to bear fruit and live life with purpose. Well, there's a bit of a cost involved in order for me to make use of you. I sometimes have to withhold physical well-being, healthfulness, and safety because I want to position you to bring glory to my name. Don't you see? I don't particularly like that reality, but it's true. And you know something good about a good God? He's never deceived us into thinking anything other. It's just when you watch too much 
stuff on TV, so-called Christian TV, TV, you get all these outlandish promises of smooth sailing. Apparently, there must be something wrong with the faith of the Lord Jesus because he didn't have smooth sailing. In fact, not only does he not promise us smooth sailing, you know what he says? In the world you will have what? Tribulations. Why is that a promise in the Bible I don't hear people claiming? That's a promise. In the world, you'll have tribulations. But though he never promised us we would not have troubles, he does promise us he would be our confidence in these troubles. And though he doesn't promise us we will be free from troubles, he does tell us we can be free from undue anxiety about these possible troubles. Why? Because even in troubling times, he's still sovereign. He's still good, and he's up to something we, this side of heaven, know not of. And so he permits us to not be afraid of two things in particular, according to the verses we're looking at. Here's the first, sudden fear. And then the second thing he permits us not to fear is the onslaught of the wicked. So let's talk about the first, sudden fear. Sudden fear. You know, that's a reference to stuff that can happen unexpectedly. Many of us are living under a cloud of fear with regard to what may happen. And what a toll this takes, doesn't it, on our lives today. Uh, It robs us of sleep, of uh, health, of peace, and well-being. Living in fear of what-ifs, what-ifs, you see. Now, to be aware of one's surroundings is legitimate and wise. In France, they're calling on people all over to be vigilant, very legitimate. You see a package here, you see a stranger there. Yeah, be vigilant. Okay, I got you. That's wise and discreet, it seems to me. But to be, we can call it this, hyper-vigilant is very, very unhealthy. A hyper-vigilant, not a vigilant person, a hyper-vigilant person is always scanning the environment looking for threats. This is a person always on high alert. A hyper-vigilant person is always thinking about some potential mishap or disaster that may befall him or her or a loved one. This person, a hypervigilant person, you see, has become ruled by what's spoken of here in the text, sudden fear. Not just fear, sudden fear. This is a person, I don't want to be surprised. I don't want to be, I want to be ready for every possibility. But don't you see, you can't. And, and, and if you let fear of sudden fear rule you, you will let it pull you out of the present into the future. That's what fear does. That's why God says, don't do it. You you don't know what the future holds. You only have today. I'll give you today your daily bread. Don't let fear pull you out of today into the future until you get to the future. You're not in the future yet. And in the passage we're looking at tonight, God says, do not be afraid of this sort of thing. Don't be afraid of sudden fear. In other words, don't let anticipation of catastrophe rule your life. Don't let fear of what may happen tomorrow, pull you out of today. So I want to ask you a question, which is private. You just answer to yourself. 
Um, do you find yourself living this way? Are you this uh, hypervigilant person? So let me tell you this. You're probably more prone to live this way if, as a child, there was lots of catastrophe in your family. And for some of us, there was. That's all there is to it. If there was just a lot of upheaval going on, so that you learned early on not to really get too comfortable because before too long, something else terrible is going to happen. You weren't imagining it. It did happen to you. If you've grown up in that background, you're probably going to be uh, prone to be a little more hypervigilant today because you want to prepare yourself for the next crisis. You don't want to be taken by surprise. And so you have developed a kind of, we can call it, an early warning system, you think, that will protect you from all catastrophe. But could I just tell don't do this don't, to yourself. Don't do that. Uh, this is the kind of thing that can rule your life. You, you are expending way too much energy trying to detect threats. But God says... Do not be afraid of sudden fear. That's what he says. Now, look, you also might be prone to this hypervigilance if you grew up with one or both parents who were irresponsible. And if, as a result, you had to assume a kind of emotional or other responsibility for yourself to fill the gap left by your irresponsible dad or mom or both, if that's you, growing up thinking, well, I have to take care of myself, then you may be more prone to this hypervigilance as well. But I, I need to tell you, when we use the term born again, that means you're in a new family and you have the most responsible heavenly father <laughs> imaginable who says, I yearn to be responsible for you. Stop trying to protect yourself. Stop living in anticipation of catastrophe. Please know I'm your dad. And I can use all things for your good. Now, the second thing this text permits us to be unafraid of is the onslaught of the wicked. What does that mean? The language in the original language is ambiguous. I wish I could be more dogmatic and precise about this, but I can't. It can mean one of two things. When it says, don't be afraid of the onslaught of the wicked, it could mean the onslaught that comes against you by wicked people like ISIS. Could mean that. You would think it means that, yeah. But the language all also and perhaps leans more in this direction. Don't be afraid of not the onslaught of the wicked against you, but of God's judicial onslaught against them. But you say, it can't be that. I mean, why would I be afraid <laughs> of God's ferocious judgment against the wicked? I would welcome it, not be afraid of it. Not true. You might be afraid that you're going to get swallowed up in it all. And that when God does come to judge the wicked, he will not make a distinction between the wicked and you. And this text says, don't be afraid of that. 
Because God does distinguish in his judgment between those who are his and those who aren't. Do you remember Sodom and Gomorrah? He didn't treat everyone there the same. Lot, you know, Lot was no bargain. You know this? But he was part of the covenant, just like we're not bargains. But we're part of the new covenant by faith in the Lord Jesus. Just as God spared Lot and judged with destruction everyone else, so too he will spare those who were his when the ultimate destruction and judgment, divine judgment on the wicked comes to pass. So I think this is saying, don't worry about it. He will destroy the wicked, but he will save to the uttermost those who are his just as he did with Lot. When the Lord finally decides to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their sin, if you are in Christ, you can count yourself safe. By the way, when we say, I am saved, are you saved? You can ask the question, saved from what? Many things, but here's the premier thing from which we are saved. It is the wrath of God. We are saved from the wrath of God. Why? The full outpouring of it was on the shoulders of the Lord Jesus Christ, who said, it is finished. It is canceled. And the Father accepted that. How do I know he accepted it? How do you know? Because he rose up from death. That was the Father's stamp of approval on the crucifixion, the resurrection, you see? So we need not fear the wrath of God. So we are invited to trust God for the future, that is to say, for the what-ifs of life. Now, we're not so good at it, and uh, to highlight this, I want to read to you a story. It's a children's story. I hope this doesn't offend you. It's not exactly deep theology, but it contains deep theology if you pay attention to it. And it's about someone who, like us, was, uh, had to learn to deal with the what-ifs of life, and his name is Bruce Moose. Yeah. So, oh yeah, here we go. Bruce Moose. Saturday was a special day in Wonder Woods. Every Saturday, the young animals from the edge of the forest would follow the path to the big meadow in the center of the woods. They hopped and skipped. Look, it gets better. They hopped and skipped and skittered along the path, sliding down the grassy banks, crossing over the bridge and running into the meadow and looking forward to a great time of play. They all got together. Buford Bear, Elwood Elk, Norman the Nightcrawler, Sheryl Squirrel, and others. But somebody was missing. Bruce Moose. He was nowhere to be seen. Buford Bear said, Bruce must have overslept again, just like last Saturday. He called out, come on, Bruce, wake up. It's time to go to the meadow to play. Bruce answered, I'm sorry, guys. I can't play today. I'm tired, and I don't feel very well. They all thought, this doesn't sound like Bruce. Something must be wrong. So Hip Hop Bunny, how are we doing so far? We're doing all right? Hip Hop Bunny jumped in and said, maybe if I make one of my famous funny faces, he'll forget what's bothering him, and he'll come out and play. It didn't work. Uh, But finally, Bruce did stick his head out of the bushes and say, if I come out and play, something might happen, something real bad. Like what, they asked. Well, well, what if I leave my home and clouds come and it rains and I slip and fall and get hurt? 
Or, or what if I, I, I try to cross the bridge and it breaks and I fall into the stream and everybody laughs at me? Or what if I go to the meadow and while I'm there, some robbers come to my home and steal my food? Well, before Bruce could come up with another what if, Brenda Blue Jay got right in his face and said, I know what's wrong with you. You've got a serious case of the what ifs. You're letting those little guys boss you around and tell you what to do. What's a what if, asked Bruce. Well, Brenda explained, it's a tiny imaginary creature that makes you think of all the bad things that might happen to you. Sometimes it's called worry. Everybody has what ifs, but if you listen to them, they get stronger and stronger. So Brenda said, if you listen to the what ifs long enough, you'll be too scared to do anything. They'll make your head hurt. They'll upset your stomach. They'll ruin your sleep. They'll take away your energy. The only way to get rid of your what ifs is to tell them the truth. Well, with this, the animal friends headed down the path, leaving Bruce alone with his what ifs. They seemed to weigh a ton, and he decided to do something about this. And so he took one of the what ifs, and he looked that what if right in the eye and said, listen, you, go away. Well, that didn't work. And then he yelled at the what if, and that didn't work either. He tried to remember what Brenda had told him. Did she say to beat them off with a stick? No, 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 that wasn't it. What was it? And Bruce remembered. Brenda told him the only way to get rid of your what ifs is to tell them the truth. So Bruce decided to give this a try. He said, the truth is there's probably not much chance that it's going to rain on this beautiful sunny day. And there's probably not much chance that somebody will rob my home while I'm gone. And there probably isn't much chance that the bridge is going to break. And the truth is, even if those things do happen to me, I can handle it. I've gotten this far. These things won't destroy me. And as he said these things, as he spoke the truth, he began to hear one pop and then another pop and then another. His what ifs had suddenly disappeared. So Bruce crossed the bridge he had worried so much about for no reason. He went down to the meadow where his friends were waiting for him. He stayed and played all day long. Though the what-ifs tried to bother Bruce again, he only had to tell them the truth to keep them from hanging on and ruining his day. Folks, it's a kid's story. It's a little unrealistic, a little cartoonish and all the rest. But I realized when I read it some time ago, maybe you do as well, that just like Bruce Moose, I have to do the hard work of casting off the what-ifs. I cannot let the abundant life the Lord Jesus means for me and for you to be extinguished by potential disasters and evildoers in the world. I can't let them rob me of what my Father wants me to have today. I can't do it. So like Bruce Moose, I figured out I can deal with the what-ifs by telling them the truth. And here's the truth. I'm working on memorizing it because I'm not good at this and I want to get better at it. Perhaps you do too. Do not be, here's what we tell the what ifs. Do not be afraid of sudden fear, nor of the onslaught of the wicked, not if, when it comes. For the Lord will be your confidence and he will keep your foot from being caught. 
want to ask you a question. Would you bow your heads with me just for a second? This is to give you a time of prayer. Earlier when you interacted with fellows here at Sagemont, uh, you perhaps identified fears that possess you in particular. Well-being, family members, financial situation, vocation, health, whatever it is, fears. Legitimate concerns, but maybe unreasonable fears. It's kind of choking out the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, goodness, kindness. It's making us a little unattractive as ambassadors for Christ. We're too tense, too intense, lemon-like instead of filled with joy. Um, would you do some business with your father right where you are? Would you say on this day at this time, whatever the date is, I can't remember, here at Sagemont Church, oh God, I want to leave behind my inordinate anxiety about, and then you fill in the blank. I want to leave at the throne, <laughs> the foot of the cross, my fear about it's something in particular that maybe God brings to mind. Say, God, I'm new at this. I need supernatural enablement to help me overcome my, what is mine by nature. I'm a worrier by nature. <laughs> I want to be a truster by supernatural enablement. Oh God, fill me with your spirit. Let a simple passage like this control me. Help me to put in check my otherwise unchecked addiction to worry. Oh God, it's silly. It can't change a thing. <laughs> I'm going to be confronted with whatever it is you permit to come my way. And though it be painful, Apparently, it will be purposeful and useful. Oh, God, I trust you for it today. Would you please have some time right where you are? Make a decision. Nail it down. Take God up at his offer. He said, I permit you not to be afraid. Take him up at it. Spend some time. Cast all your anxieties on him, for he cares about you. Oh, God, that is so much. It's enough for us to leave this place in peace. Prince of peace, help us to do so. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.